Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 17. We'll be looking at the final verses in this chapter today. We've been studying the Lord's high priestly prayer for the last two weeks. And Jesus, uh, in verses 1 through 5, prayed for the glory of the Father, the glory of God. He prayed these words to his Father in heaven as the 11 disciples listened. His prayer came at the hour of his death. Uh, He was going to the cross. That had finally come. That time in his life had come. And he prayed for the Father to glorify him as he also glorified the Father. And we saw that theme in, in the first five verses. And God answered the first portion of Christ's prayer. The Father was indeed glorified. Jesus finished the work of salvation as he died on the cross. He was glorified in that the Father gave him the authority to grant eternal life to as many as would believe. And people are being saved for the glory of God. If you're here today and you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're a trophy of his grace. You stand to his glory of what he's done to redeem a sinner. It's a wonderful thing. And then in the second section of the prayer, in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed specifically in verse 11 that God would keep them. And this had to do with the security of their salvation. In verse 11, he also prayed that God would unite them. In verse 13, he prayed that that they would have Christ's joy fulfilled in themselves. In verse 15, he prayed that the Lord would keep them from the evil one. That has to do with protection rather than the keeping of security back in verse 11. Verse 17, he prayed that God would cleanse them through the word of God. And the reason that he wanted them sanctified through God's truth, his word is truth, was so that he could use them in a a world that needed to hear the gospel. And as that uh, was prayed, we look back and we say, the Lord has answered that second part of his prayer. The disciples were indeed preserved. They were protected. They were united in their goals. They were filled with joy. They were cleansed so that they could take the word of God to to others. And as that message spread around the globe, souls trusted Christ from every tribe, from every nation. We're here this morning because we received that same message throughout all the, the history of the church. That message has been passed on And we've responded in faith. As we come to the third part of Christ's high priestly prayer, we find that he's praying for us. We were not there, but we have his word recorded here in this passage. And we can come with the same wonder that those 11 disciples had as they listened to him praying for them. We can have that same joy and thrill and wonder as we read the words that he prayed for us. Verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, that is the disciples, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Isn't that wonderful? To trace your redemption back to that same gospel message that came from the disciples, apostolic preaching. The title of the message this morning, Jesus Prays for All Believers. We'll just be looking at the last seven verses, verses 20 through 26. These verses are are very difficult to outline. There are some writers in scripture that, that I find difficult to put in, in an ABC type format. And also, we're talking about the prayer of Christ here. It's coming from his heart. 
And, and I see more of a, a spiral where certain truths come to the surface and, and they're repeated in a few more phrases. And so as I look at those, these verses, I see three main requests that keep, keep surfacing. He prays for us to be united. He prays for us to be a testimony to the world. And he prays for us to be with him in heaven. Let's start in verses, uh, verse 21. That they all may be one. Remember, he's praying for those that shall believe through their word. Verse 20 and now 21. That they all may be one. And that's that first theme for us to be united. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And that's that second request I see for us to be a testimony to the world. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be one. There's that recurring theme. Even as we are one. I in them and thou in me that they may be perfect, may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them and has loved me. And then he begins in verse 24, and here's the third request. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. The first request is this prayer for unity, that we as believers today would be united. The text says in verse 21, that they all may be one. In verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. And verse 23, that they may be made perfect in one. He had prayed for that same kind of unity for his disciples back in verse 11. Let's look back up there with our eyes. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. That unity was based on the fact of God's keeping them, keeping them in salvation. God kept them through his name. We said last week that's his character, and he's omnipotent. He will not lose any of his own. God is faithful and true. He will not break his promise. He will not change his promise to you about eternal life. And then also God gave them to Christ, another safeguard of security. And verse 11 ends, that they may be one as we are. The disciples were secure in their salvation. They'd been brought into that spiritual union that is as close as the unity in the Godhead. And that is just beyond what I can understand. That we would be one, that we would be united as Christ is with the Father. And this is the same thing that Jesus is praying for us in verse 22. That they may be one even as we are one. Can we even begin to grasp what that means? To closeness, a oneness, described in the scripture as a physical body. 
Believers are united in Christ. When we, when we are saved, we are placed into the body of Christ. Romans 12, 5 says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. And so, as we are in the body of Christ, we, we, we look at each other, we have different responsibilities in that body of Christ, different gifts, but we're all in the same body, and there's this unity that we have as believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 18 through 20 also gives us that same idea of, of the body of Christ. But now hath God sent the, set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body? It's something that's already been accomplished by God, this unity. It's not something that we work up. Say, well, we want to be more united, so let's have a fellowship dinner. That's what unites us as believers, right? And until we start arguing about who had the last good cookie that was there. This, this, this unity has already been accomplished. God has already done it. Leon Morris writes, The nature of this unity is to be noted. It is a unity already given. Jesus did not pray that they may become one, but they may continually be one. We're already united in the body of Christ. That happened at the moment of salvation. Besides being that mystical union that we've been talking about, placed into the universal body of Christ, there is a unity that can be demonstrated within each local church. There should be a unity here at Grace Baptist Church. John Phillips writes this, This refers to any local body of believers who love the Lord Jesus who are saved by his grace, who are seeking to walk in the light of God's word, who are drawn together for worship and fellowship and Christian service, holding fast to the truth that is in Christ. He says, when the ungodly look on or are introduced to the church, they are convinced that this is of God. They believe in Christ for themselves because they have seen and sensed Christ in the midst of his people. I thought about that this week, and I thought, when people look at Grace Baptist Church, do they see such unity that they recognize this has to be God's work? Is our unity obvious to others? Do they see us as one body that he has placed together for the glory of God? I have a word of caution about this passage and, and Christ praying for unity. Here's what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says about John 17, 21. It was written in 1989. It's a great set of two volumes. If you don't have a good set of commentaries, that's a great place to start. They write, This verse is a favorite of promoters of the present ecumenical movement. Ecumenicism is all churches getting together, gathering together as one. Admittedly, the, divine, the divided church is in many ways a scandal. The cure, however, is not institutional union. Jesus was not praying for the unity of a single worldwide ecumenical church in which doctrinal heresy would be maintained along with orthodoxy. Instead, he was praying for a unity of love, a unity of obedience to God and his word, and a united commitment to his will. Another great preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, lived between 1834 to 1892. He died when he was 58. But he wrote, To remain divided is sinful. 
Did not our Lord pray that they may be one even as we are one? John 17, 22. A chorus of ecumenical voices keeps harping the unity tune. What they are saying is Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless. Unite. Unite. Such teaching, Spurgeon says, is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. And then he points out our Lord's Prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so this unity comes not on the basis of love. I've heard people say, well, let's set aside our doctrinal differences and let's just all love each other. Doctrine doesn't divide us. Doctrine indeed should unite us. And we come to God's word and we, we come together in agreement to what God has said. Over the last few weeks, there have been stories about what's going on in Kentucky at Asbury the revival that's breaking out there. If it is a true working of God, then we're going to see the results of people turning from sin because of what the word of God says. In every revival you study, you find a, a repentance, a confession of sin. When Chicago was under the revival, they were, they were rolling out beer barrels and smashing them in the streets. There was a change in the way people lived because they were coming back to the word of God. One child mispronounced the word when he said, what we need is a re-Bible. He might have got it wrong in his pronunciation, but it's right in his theology. It's exactly what will happen when people repent and return to God. Christians are the only ones who can be revived, by the way. You have to have life in order to be revived. But that's always been the effect, uh, that revival of Christians there's been an effect on the lost because we, we begin to be burdened for them all of a sudden. We begin to pray more fervently. We begin to be more bold in our evangelism when God revives us. And so we'll see what takes place. If this is from God, we'll see a, a return to the doctrines that have been neglected, especially in the United Methodist Church, of which Asbury is a part especially when it comes to the acceptance of the gay and lesbian lifestyle in the ministry, in, in clerical use, as they have ordained those. So in summation of this first request for Jesus, for believers, in order for all believers to be one, we don't set aside doctrinal truth in order to have unity. We've already been placed into the body of Christ. That's as united as we can get. Unity will be obvious when we submit to the leadership of our head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're called together and united on the absolute truth of God's word. The second request that I see Jesus praying, he prayed that we would be a testimony to the world. He prayed that we would be a testimony of his deity. This is the idea of the procession, that the Father sent the Son into the world. The text says in verse 21, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And then in verse 23, uh, just one different word, that the world may know that thou hast sent me. He prayed that the world would believe 
and also know that Christ was sent from the Father. There are two different nuances in these two different words. That the world may believe is pistuo, it means to have faith, to trust. In verse 23, that the world may know, gnosko, is to perceive or to understand mentally. And when he places these two words together, there is a, this mental understanding of, of what we need to know, and also there is a step of faith. Our testimony to the world should be a matter of factual evidence, as sharing the truths that we find in God's word, the truths that all men are sinners, the truths that Jesus Christ came to the world to die for our sins, the truth that if you accept him as your savior, you'll have everlasting life. It's also a matter of trust then. We give people the truth of the gospel and pray that they will respond in faith. And so the world, that the world may believe, that the world may know that thou hast sent me. How important is it to believe that the Father sent the Son? Let's look back in chapter 8 of John. And we'll look at two verses here. Uh, the context here in, in chapter 8, Jesus was encountering those who were, were ready to stone him. They were ready to kill him because he said that the Father sent him. And in their minds, he's making himself equal with God. And then if it were not true, it would be blasphemous. John chapter 8, look at verse 18. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Now look down to verse 24. Jesus told those that did not believe he was sent from God, if you believe not that I am, and you'll see he is in italics there. It's ego eimi, I am. The same that we see all the way through the Gospel of John. If you believe not that I am, ye shall what? Die in your sins. How important is it to believe that God sent his son Jesus Christ? Unless you believe that, you cannot be saved. Our testimony that God sent his son into the world should be, be made known to the whole world. That the world may believe, that the world may know. Same word for world there, cosmos, the place called earth, but also the inhabitants on this earth, the people who live here. And so our testimony is not limited just to the people that we know and that the people that we think ought to get the gospel message. Our gospel should go to the whole world. That's what the Great Commission was. Mark 16, 15, go ye into all the world, same word, cosmos, and preach the gospel to every creature. Our testimony that God sent his son needs to be universal. The message of our witness, we're to let the world know that Jesus was sent from the Father. John 3.16, a verse we all know. If we follow to the next verse, we'll see that word sent. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He sent Jesus into this world so that the inhabitants of the world might believe and be saved. So in this testimony, he's praying for you to be. Be a testimony that God sent Jesus into the world. And we know why he did for their salvation. He also prayed that we would be a testimony of his love. In verse 23, And hast loved them as thou hast loved me. 
Verse 26, And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. He prayed that God's love, the love that he had for his son, would be in each one of you, each one of us. He prayed that Christ himself would be in us. Did you see that in verse 26 at the end? That his love may be in them and I in them. Jesus ended the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 with the promise, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. What a wonderful promise. But F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, says, I am with you is good indeed. I am in you is better still. Christ in us. The hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. The key to having that kind of love permeate our lives so that others will know that God loves them is to have the indwelling Christ, the one whom God loved before the foundation of the world. Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, living in us and allowing him to love others through us. He prayed that we'd be a testimony of his deity, a testimony of his love, and notice also that we would be a testimony of his glory, verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. In verse 1, Jesus prayed that God would, be, would glorify the Son and that the Son also would glorify the Father. And we learned that when God receives the glory, um, it was when Christ died on the Calvary's cross. And he, he finished what the Father gave him to do. We saw that in verse 4. Then the Father was glorified, or glorified the Son by raising him up, by exalting him to his, his throne, to his right hand. So that has taken place. We bring glory to God whenever we do his will. The first step toward that will is to trust him as Savior. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Salvation glorifies the Father. He's glorified through answered prayers. John 14, 13, And whatsoever ye ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He's to be glorified in everything that we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. It's not relegated to spiritual things, to reading your Bible, to praying, to coming to church. Everything you do can bring glory to God. This is what he prayed. He prayed that we'd be a testimony of his glory. Why is it necessary for us to display his glory Look at verse 25, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee. In order for us to be a testimony, an effective testimony to this world today, we need to let them know Jesus Christ is God. God sent him into this world for a reason. We need to let them know of God's love. We need to let them know of God's glory. The third request, he prayed that we would be with him in heaven. Well, who doesn't want that? You know, we've, we've been to the graveside an awful, an awful lot in this church in the last two years. And often I come away thinking, how, how sad this is. And it's not. It's glorious. 
Jesus prayed that we would be with him. And every time that we go to the graveside of a loved one who knows Christ, that prayer is answered. We need to look at it that way. Look at verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest them before the foundation of the world. I will that they also be with me. We are, when we go to, to the Lord in prayer, we're told if we pray according to his will, he hears us. And when you think about Christ himself, his will is God's will. And he uses a, 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 the, the wording here that's unique. In the form of the verb that's found here is not found anywhere else in the Bible. Gabeline says it has the meaning of a positive purpose. He said it is more than a mere request. It is a demand. He wants us to be with him. He prayed to that end. Warren Wiersbe says, Every Christian who dies and goes to heaven, it's because Jesus Christ prayed that this might be so, and the Father always answers his prayers. Remember his words to the disciples in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. What a day that will be to be with him. Heaven is a place that Christ has prepared for us. He wants us to be there with him. I thought about that. I thought he's been preparing that place for almost 2,000 years. God only took six days to create the world and the universe. 2,000 years he's been preparing that place for us. I'm sure it's ready by now. He desires us to be with him so that we may behold his glory, the glory given him by the Father. Again, as we look at this prayer in John 17, we look at the first two sections of that high priestly prayer, and everything that he prayed for has been or is being fulfilled. Jesus' prayers are always answered. And I look at this section, and I have to ask, is, is this prayer being worked out in your life? Is he fulfilling these requests in you today? He prayed that we would be unified as believers. That unity is based on our submission to the absolute truth of God's word. If there's no unity in the body of Christ today, it's because somebody is not submitting to the head. Somebody's not being obedient. Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I do? He's commanded us to be if you love me, keep my commandments. And so, are we unified as believers? Are we in his word? Are we in agreement? Are we submitting to him? Second, are we a witness to this lost world of his deity, of his love, of his glory? Do others know why God sent his son into the world just because they know you? They've heard you? Do they see the love of God that's transformed your life? And now they recognize what an unusual love that you have for others. Does your life bring glory to God? Have you been redeemed? Have you seen answered prayers? Is he glorified in the daily routines of your life and all that you do? Third, he prayed that you'd be with him in heaven. Is that your hope? Are you looking forward to being with him and 
enjoying his glory, seeing his glory forever and ever. Let me end our study of John 17 with the words of George Newton, who wrote at the close of uh, an exposition of this chapter. I mentioned Marcus Rainsford last week. Uh, George Newton was a, a Puritan writer, and he, he also wrote an entire book based on John 17, this prayer. 403 pages, like any good Puritan. <laughs> I'll read just one section of how he closes that entire book on this chapter. How earnest and important is Christ with God the Father, that we may be one here and that we may be in one place hereafter. Oh, let us search into the heart of Jesus Christ, laid open to us in this abridgment of his intercession for us, that we may know it and the working of it that is his heart more and more until at length the precious prayer comes to its full effect and we may be taken up to be forever with the Lord and where he is, there we may be also. May we look forward to this prayer being answered in our individual lives. That we would be united. That we would be a testimony to others. And that we would one day enjoy his presence forever. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for this insight into the prayer of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that what he prays is always answered. And I pray that in our own lives, we would recognize that this prayer for us is to be fleshed out in our daily living. So help us, who have been belligerent not to be united in doctrine with each other. Help us, who have been silent when we should be speaking of the wonderful grace of Jesus to a world that needs to see how to be redeemed and Lord, help us to look forward to that day, anticipating being in your presence, seeing your glory forever and ever. And may that hope of the believer affect the way that we live from day to day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.